This is where the hero often realizes what they need and they realize what their flaw is and they realize what they have to do to flip it. And that realization powers them to kind of like have a Phoenix moment where they come back, rise up from the ashes, and then often literally run into act three. What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have an old friend here, Victor Pinheiro. We work together at a big spaceship. Vic has made movies and books and a ton of social media much of which you might know, especially if you've been on social media for a very long time. Today, we're actually going to talk about presentation structure. We're going to borrow from Vic's brain everything he knows about screenwriting and structuring stories, documentaries and movies, well, and novels. And we're going to see how we can extract some principles that we can apply to a strategy that's going to help or is going to aim to help people adopt greyhounds. Vic, my old friend, welcome. Thank you. Thanks a million for having me. So, uh, so psyched to do this. I'm super excited to have you here as well. Let's chat a little bit before we go into the presentation information about some of the projects that you've done. Second Skin, what was that? Sure. Yes. You know, spent like six years when I first graduated college as a teacher. And then my brother and I decided to kind of like do the classic mid twenties thing, quit our jobs and try to make a documentary. So we made this documentary about virtual worlds. Um, and basically it was all about people whose lives were either kind of blessed or cursed by virtual worlds. People, we had addicts in there, but we also had some disabled folks whose lives were kind of like made normal by being in virtual worlds. And just this really awesome, fun experience spending three years just nerding out about technology and culture around technology. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. First published book. What was that? Then after Second Skin and making a few more short documentaries with Vice, went over to Big Spaceship, hung out with you. I hung out there for a while. And after that, on the side, kind of started writing novels as well. So the first one will be published in July this year. Got a book deal for a series. And then hopefully there'll be more coming after that. So, um, you know, the first series is really kind of my kid self just having a blast. And so it's a middle grade book. And then the next one is a bit more serious, the like classic YA anxiety book. So <laughs> kind of exploring a lot of different things right now. Yeah. Do we have names for these projects? Oh, sure. So the series is called Time Villains. Very epic uh, middle grade name. Second book still to be titled. So still working on that. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Just setting you up to hopefully sell some stuff, but also yeah, setting up the fact that you do make outside of advertising and that you do have credentials. You've also taught screenwriting. Oh, totally putting you on the spot here. Which awesome. brand do you feel you made the most impact with, especially as far as their presence in social media? Oh, it's a big one. That's a tough oh, one. I know question. that's an awful question. <laughs> it is. Um, I mean, the, the two that I definitely feel grateful to have been able to work on were Skittles and YouTube. So Skittles was just right place, right time. I'd just come out of making that documentary and I'd, I'd done a lot of social media marketing with that documentary, like pre-Facebook. So it was like MySpace and, and blog social media world, but not a lot of people had done it back then. So people were like, oh, this guy seems to know social media. So I ended up at Big Spaceship and maybe a month after I joined Wrigley, came to us asking, hey, we got all these brands. Can you throw them on this thing called Facebook and this thing called Twitter? And I was just lucky enough to be the social media guy who they just hired. So of those 10 brands, Skittles was uh, by far the most fun, great brand manager. He really kind of let me just go crazy with it. And so I think the thesis we had was like, hey, we'd like to try this thing that seems a little revolutionary in 2009, which is zero marketing on Facebook, 
we're just going to adopt the character of the rainbow, who's kind of this bizarre persona, similar to the Skittles commercials you have. And we're just going to do kind of one-liners about his life. And that's all we did. And we stuck to it for about three years. And, you know, it was, it was thankfully really successful, definitely one of the early uh, social media wins. But all it really was, was people letting, letting a couple of us get weird and, and just having a ton of fun. So probably Skittles. And then YouTube came in 2013, 2014, wanted like the Skittles team to kind of, you know, work on, on there with them. And then that just kind of grew and grew and grew in the remit. And it's tough to say in terms of impact, because I just think YouTube is this enormously successful product that who knows what advertising does and doesn't do to help social media. You know, it's just kind of its own monolith, but um, definitely love that we got to, um, you know, the, the, the big spaceship team, we really got to play a really big part when it came to helping to create what influencers meant in the world and also got to kind of just VJ for YouTube for many years because social was really about curation and finding like, what are those like really incredible YouTube videos that people haven't seen and how do you surface them before anybody else? And it was just a ton of fun. So probably one of those. Yeah, and Skittles. So 2009, obviously there would have been characters or there were characters in TV campaigns. And then prior to that, there were characters in multi-channel campaigns so for example i think crispin and porter did they have a vw campaign and stolen a3 or something and there's i'm probably mixing agencies and and brands here but there were characters being made that appear in different social networks but they might not survive the skittles one was probably the first by a large multinational company with a massive well-established brand that was like we're, we're just going to be the character on social media is that fair to say I'm pretty sure we were the first one. Yeah. From everything I've seen and, and talked to people about, I think we were the first one on that. Yeah. And the uh, website design, I always loved it. It was w way before I ever worked at Big Spaceship, but like, and it was just a never ending rainbow, just absurdism. You just keep scrolling, scrolling, absurdism, absurdism. It was like pre Instagram feed and TikTok absurdism, but it was a website. And that was also unusual for a big brand to do back then too, right? Oh, yeah, I've got to shout out uh, Dave Chow, the genius on that one. Yeah, it was basically, it was Tumblr before Tumblr was Tumblr. Like, it was a never-ending site of weirdness. It was so fun. I was so thrilled to work on that team, yeah. <laughs> so before, last question before we get into the presentation, information. How do you feel about social media now? You've been around it, you've created for brands on it, you've examined it, you've made documentaries about it. You know, I'm just, let me try not to put my foot in my mouth. Um, so... <laughs> You know, I, I got to say the last few years, I've, I've, I've tried to thoughtfully distance myself a little bit more from social media lately. There's this fantastic article that just came out by Amy Brown, who was the voice of Wendy's when Wendy's was really, really popular. Definitely one of like the big social media personalities in the last decade or so on brand social. She had this fantastic article just come out a couple of days ago, can't remember where, one of the major outlets, all about why it's become ethically dubious and a lot of social media managers are really having ethical issues working in social media anymore. And I've really been feeling that a lot and have felt that for the last few years, you know? It's funny to feel old school. It's only been a, you know like a decade, but in, those, in social, that's eons. Mm. I, I do feel like you know when a lot of people who were in social between 2009 and 2014, they got to experience a very different world of brand social than people after that. Because for us back then, it was the wild west. They hadn't turned on. Um, they hadn't. There was no control on reach. Reach was literally something that was achieved by good content. If your content was great and it was going viral, there was nothing artificially created that was going to you know, bring that content down if you hadn't paid for it or you hadn't, you know, et cetera. So it was the wild west and it was so much fun. And I think people who are social media managers then got used to like the positive aspects of social, which were community building and actual, really actually community, like cultivating 
communities and having a lot of fun with that about trying to like find really fun comedians and writers who could write really great posts. And when those posts would do well, they would organically reach a lot more people and, and success just felt very pure at that point. And then all of a sudden, you know, I mean, as everyone here knows, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but like, you know, in about, I think it was 2014 or over three to six months, you know, Facebook just pulled that lever, you know, God bless them. And all of a sudden the social game changed and you started bringing in a lot more kind of people who are paid media experts, targeting experts. And, you know, it's all well and good. The science came to social media. It was bound to come. But for a while, it really felt like more of a creative playground. Mm. So when that started taking effect, at that point, most of my focus and, and our team's focus was on YouTube, which was thankfully this anomaly that was so big that we didn't we didn't need paid. We could actually continue with having a lot of fun with organic reach and just being kind of on the, on the top of culture. But I think st- as I started to, you know, work with other brands and that sort of thing, it became, you know, this is a little bit less interesting to me. And, and I started to realize that like, I really just wanted to be able to have more fun with the creative side of things. And I felt like it was, it was getting more and more tricky, um, kind of wading into the, the world of social. So long story short, so I, that was issue number one. And then issue number two came obviously starting in, I would say what, 2016, when all of a sudden, you know, that gift gets a lot of play, I think right now, but I don't know if everyone knows the origin of it. It's that Mitchell and Webb look. It's the old sketch where there's two, you know, they're pretending they're two Nazis and they've got skulls on their uniforms. And one of them asks the other one, are we the baddies? are we the bad guys? And the whole sketch is like, well, we got skulls on our helmets. Like, aren't we the bad guys? I feel like every person who's working around social for the last four years have been asking themselves that question, or even like in so many technology companies, like, wait a second, am I working for the bad guys now? Um, I- I'm not answering that one way or another. Again. <laughs> I'm not going to put my foot in my mouth, but, but I'm just saying that question seems to come up in a lot of conversations I have with people. And I think it's really interesting people who are starting to really grapple with like, what are the ethical issues around this? And, um, you know, last thing I'll say on that is there's this great episode of The Good Place where they're talking about how it's so difficult to be good anymore because we don't know what good or bad we're putting into the world because it's so murky in terms of like what we're buying. We don't know the things that we're buying if we're, you know, sponsoring things that are really bad in the world because it's just so murky where we're getting the goods we're getting. And there's so many of us are trying to lead lives where we're doing good, but it's just like there's things kind of either beyond our control that we're not completely conscious of that are, that are causing us to not do ethically wonderful things. And that's what it feels like. Okay, that's good. Lots of way through there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> really? but, uh, I also think that it's amazing that you've been able to find a home in your own creativity while also getting paid to do social media through this decade because it's an avalanche of like information and data and trends and hashtags and possibilities to get through just to work out how to be of service and to get paid to do that work for a client to then be able to come home and go, you know what, I'm, I'm going to work on this novel or I'm going to work on the, the YA book that's coming out. How have you been able to balance the energy needs there? You know, the the short version of it is necessity, you know, and I think I spent about a decade just completely unsure that I could ever write a novel. And that was the life dream. Like ever since I was like eight years old, you know, for a long time, it was, I'm going to be the youngest published author. That was kind of like driving me when I was a kid. That obviously went by, 20s went by. And then in my 30s, I started thinking like, you know, it's now or never. And I spent a good four or five years just trying to write anything more than short stories and psyching myself out over and over and over and then I read this interview with, you know, Haruki Murakami and they asked him like, oh, how'd you write your first novel? And he was like, oh, it was like, you know, I just spent an hour a day at night. No big deal. I'd never heard that that was possible. I said, wait, you can do this for an hour a day. I don't have to like quit my job and become miserable and spend six hours to 12 hours a day in misery trying to craft a novel. And that opened me up to, to the idea and the possibility. So I said, you know, 2014, January, I said, I have a 30 minute commute each way. I'm just going to write on my commute and see what happens and who knows. 
And then at the end of the year, I had the first draft of a novel. And, you know, that was the big aha moment for me. And, you know, that novel obviously was no good in, in a file folder somewhere, but I'd done it. And then I just started to commit to like, let me start by writing on my commute. And that's how we'll start. And that's kind of the only time I'll write, you know. And then after two or three years of doing that, we had our first kid. And all of a sudden it was, okay, how am I going to do this while I'm having a kid? And I have a very intense job as well. And that obviously wasn't easy. And at moments, not doable. But over time, you kind of realize, okay, just kind of figure out what priorities are and have to be very, very ruthless. And, and also, it's honestly something that I think you taught me years ago when we were working at Big Spaceship is I think the biggest lesson I've learned is to be less precious with what you create. I used to be so precious with everything I created. And now it's scribble down a draft, keep a very low bar with what I think is good enough to get out there. Once that draft is done, be completely non-precious about tearing it up and doing it over and starting over. And I think that's probably helped me more than anything. That's cool. That's cool. There's a lot of like documentaries about artists and uh, studies of artists where they do say quantity over quality tends to lead to quality. So if you're making 10,000 paintings in a lifetime, a couple are probably going to be pretty good. But if you're only doing one a year, you know, your odds are definitely going to be much lower. Let's talk about presentations. We're going to play with this hypothetical example that I've discussed on a couple of episodes, and it's about trying to get uh, people to adopt greyhounds. I'm not going to define the audience slash customer, quote unquote, slash quote unquote consumer, any more than that. We're not going to talk about a particular kind of household, single household, double income, no kids, just people who are thinking about adopting a dog. Okay. Greyhounds, they're large. And one of the strategies that I've discussed on another episode was uh, to address the problem that a lot of people might resist adopting a greyhound because they see greyhounds as these intense athletes. And this actually came through a back and forth slash brainstorm. Lots of slashing already, but the slash brainstorm with uh, Kate Doromboza, who actually owns two greyhounds. So the problem or obstacle reason that people might not adopt a greyhound is that they see the greyhound as an intense athlete. And that means that they might tear up their house, they might take a, a lot of upkeep. And then there's a potential strategy to solve that problem. We're just going to go straight into a strategy statement from the problem statement, that by adopting a greyhound, you're actually helping a greyhound retire, that you're giving a greyhound a retirement home. Okay, so that's the theme that we're going to play with. Vic and I don't know what's going to come out. Vic, if we had to pitch, you know, few days time and we just had these these scribbles up on the wall and hopefully some kind of probably design and writing happening how would we go about the presentation how would we go about structuring it yeah great question i i think what's funny and just to put it out there is i think when we were in big spaceship together before i'd been in the agency world i'd, I'd taken tons of screenplay writing classes and i'd read a ton of books on it and i even wrote about it and taught it and i think what i'm psyched about is that i i feel like you were the one that helped teach me how to start bringing that into the world of presentations and strategy and all that. So yeah, I'd love for this to be collaborative because I feel like you were always helping me coax it out. So I feel like, okay, so jumping, I'm going to do the screenplay mode and then let's just go back and forth and, and kind of hash it out. Mm -hmm. First thing when I'm doing any kind of screenplay, and I'll caveat this by saying, you know, whenever people talk about screenplay and book structure, there's always going to be, you can, you can take the stance of like, oh, well, every screenplay is not like that. Every book's not like that. Fine. Many of them, if not most of them are. Let's just skip the like contrarian kind of take on this. So. Well, the, the flip side of that is when someone's like, they're all the same, you know, and you're like, well, which category are you putting them into? I think you've gone too far with that, with yes. the, uh, the abuse of nuance there. We, we like a bit of nuance, but yes, continue. <laughs> exactly that. 
So let's say we're just doing a, I'm just going to say Hollywood screenplay. First question I would have is, okay, what's the hook? And is it a strong hook? Because before anything else, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for a hook that makes you take a step back like, oh, interesting. That's a great idea. That's a great, you know, Groundhog Day is a great hook, right? Oh, somebody who wakes up every morning, it's the same day over and over again. Oh, that's an interesting hook. I'll watch that. Somebody who's given godlike powers, you know, like Bruce Almighty coming like random movie, but like it was a good hook. So so in this case, it's like with a greyhound, like, and I think you you just mentioned it. The hook is a geriatric home for greyhounds. So we got, we got a good hook. Yeah. So when you're saying hook, are you talking concept slash high concept or just a way to immediately get attention if you're in the room presenting, which, and they could be the same thing, but they could also be different. I think that that's a great one. So I, I think it's high concept, you know, because, you know, everyone's watching like how many new shows are, you know, every year come out with the streaming wars happening. And there's just like this insane amount of shows. And all of a sudden you have no time to pitch somebody a show. So you have to get a really good one liner, high concept idea. That's enough to, you know, hook somebody in and say, okay, based on that one sentence, I'm in, I'm going to watch the first episode of this season. So that's, yeah, high concept. All right. So the concept is essentially this, some language from the strategy about when you adopt a greyhound, you're helping a greyhound retire, as in your home will become a retirement home for a greyhound. That's the exactly. hook? Yep, that's okay. the hook. All right. Next. Uh, the next thing, and this, I would love your creativity to figure out how we're going to translate this. You have to figure out like, okay, I have the high concept. Now I have to start working on, there's two levels. And this was a big eureka moment when I learned this. But in a screenplay or a, or a novel, there's two levels. One level is called the plot and the other level is called the story. So the plot is the kind of A happens, then B happens, then C happens, like a cause and effect chain of events that are happening through the book. And it's all external. You know, it's um, the person, you know, that guy Brody who's, who's chasing the shark jaws and wants to kill him and everything that's happening in that plot. The story is internal and it's what's happening with the protagonist and how he's going through something emotionally and how he's, and then the plot obviously is going to affect his emotional uh, journey, his emotional arc, and they interplay with each other, the plot and the story. And kind of like those two levels, you know, shifting and playing off each other are what create strong stories. Okay. So the plot is what happens step mm -hmm. by step by step. And then the story is how the protagonist experiences what happens. Right. So the, the plot is usually, it's the hero wanting something like, okay, I want to kill Jaws or, you know, whatever. Think of any movie. You know, the, most, especially Hollywood movies have very clear wants. That's the plot. The hero wanting something and, and that cause in a chain, uh, cause, in ch cause, in, oh, cause in effect a chain of things moving along. Mm -hmm. uh, the story is the hero needing something. So it's what the hero internally needs. He might not realize it. Often he or she does not realize it, but that's kind of what's moving there. And slowly the story is what reveals the hero's character. Right, right. And, and, and obviously, there are some pretty corny examples that come immediately to mind where, you know, a, a character wanted to be by themselves, but they really needed to be a friend to somebody who also needed a friend. You, you kind of have that want and need resolve itself in sometimes corny ways, but it's, it's useful to think of, of the tension right there. Now, hang on, when you're saying the word plot, are you saying the overarching plot or all the little things that happen that make up the plot? The examples that I feel you gave to us are the, like, the higher order wants. Or needs or are you because like some people i've seen that when they're writing a book or, or a screenplay they'll open a blank document and actually type you know like sentence by sentence maybe there's a hundred sentences which are the plot of what actually happens and then they go back and rewrite them in a creative way yeah 100 percent. I, I think it's the second one it's, it's your point i think often to simplify things and especially as we're bringing this into the world of, of presentations and that sort of thing the more you can simplify the overarching plot especially early on the better because at the end of the day it's always going to come back to the elevator pitch concept of like 
if your idea is strong, you can tell it to somebody very, very quickly. I mean, that, the Greyhound concept took you 10 seconds, five seconds maybe to explain. And I think that's always what you want. Um, and then we haven't yet spoken about the audience for this presentation. I'm just going to make it up. It's the CEO of all Greyhounds. That's a thing. It's totally a thing, all right? Nice. nice. <laughs> okay, CEO of all Greyhounds, has a little bit of money and wants to help all the Greyhounds get adopted. Okay, that's the audience. And we've got this theme. So how do we play with the plot and the story for this theme of adopting a Greyhound helps a Greyhound retire or gives a Greyhound a retirement home or, as you said, a geriatric home? Yeah. So if we were doing the screenplay thing, I think what we would do, and now that we know our audience, it's going to be interesting because I think now we have to figure out how we want to translate the idea of the hero of the story and the, and the antagonist, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's a really important point because a lot of these techniques are useful. And then you have to think about how does that even relate to the context here, which is you've got a quote unquote consumer or potential adopter and there's a CEO. So they're your client. Who's the hero? Who's the protagonist? Am I the hero? Is the CEO the hero? Is the adopter? You know, so you have to pick to help your presentation make sense. You have to kind of work the analogies that you might draw from screenwriting to make them make sense. It's not that there's always like a really easy translation that, you know, the word hero, it's, it's always this person or this group of people, right? So in this particular situation, who might we make the hero? Right. So in this situation, is, is the Greyhound the most? Because I agree completely with what you just said. I think it's super important to say that. I think whenever you're translating something like this into a presentation, it's really important not to get too specific and precious where like, oh, every aspect of this has to translate directly into how the presentation is being made. It has to have three acts, et cetera. Like, no, 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 you can be much more broad and just, you know, things you learn from this kind of area, adopt them as you will, but don't feel the need to have them all. So there's one that we've discussed before, one piece of structure, I guess, which is like the long dark night, which tends to happen before act three when the right. hero is nearly being vanquished and often i learned this from you they often go to a bar and it is literally a long dark night by themselves in a bar think of deadpool which often takes place in a bar right and then they can't they come back now if you want to like play that structure into a strategy presentation you, you can and it could be as simple as like what could go wrong if we don't solve this and so it can translate but there are times when some of these concepts they're difficult to translate they're little riddles and then you throw it out because it's not working for you and you do it on the next one. So who do you think is going to be the hero of this presentation? We're presenting to the CEO. The CEO's got some money to spend to help the Greyhounds. Who's the hero of this story? Of this is it the Greyhound? I'm curious. I would think potentially make it the Greyhound. Could be, could be. I'm wondering whether it's the adopter. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because, you know, to make them the hero of the story. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I dig it. I dig it. Let's try that. Okay. I'll write it down. Oh, then what do we do? So uh, then I think what's interesting, and you, you started getting into it too, is starting to think of both units of story and then story signs, story posts, kind of like the, you know, the long dark night of the soul is definitely one of those, but like getting into that world where, you know, first it's, okay, let's break it down into, I have a general sense of plot. I have a general sense of story. Like you said, it could be somebody who kind of scribbled down a bunch of them on a piece of paper. It could be even more general. Now it's, how do I want to make that like stretch that out over three acts. And the best way to think about that, everyone says three acts. I don't think three acts are very, it's very useful to think of things in just three acts. I think that the most useful way to break it down is in act one, act two A, act two B, and act three. And that to me is what makes the most sense because act one, very, you know, we can talk about this in a second, but like very specific trajectory. Something happens at the end of act one that's very specific. Then act two A has a very like specific feel as is act two B, as is act three. So to me, it's it's too confusing to keep it three acts. It's really like four units. And one yep. of those is a very big act too. 
Yeah, I, I keep an eye on how people explain story structure every so often. And lately, I have to admit, I've seen a lot more people say four acts. Think of four acts and it's one, two, three, four, because typically act one and act three is often, not always, often similar in length or in page count, mm -hmm. not always. And then act two, if it's just three acts, act two is often twice the mm -hmm. length of act one. It's bigger. You know, and what I like, what I also want to get into is, Sometimes it's really patronizing when someone says, look, this story needs a beginning, a middle and an end. Duh. It's like, well, that's not useful unless you define what the ingredients typically are of a beginning, a middle and an end, which is what I think we're about to do. So act one, beginning, most useful ingredients that might apply to many strategy presentations. What are they? Act one. Where I see it get really useful in strategy presentations is, you know, whether we define the hero one way or the other, the idea is the arc of act one, which is you start out and it's always a day in the life. And you're kind of trying to define a certain amount of things that are quote unquote normal. So this is the hero in his regular life, just having, having a day. Like I think there's so many generic examples you can imagine in your head where you're just kind of seeing the main character gets defined. He does something, he or she, that really defines them immediately. You know, there's a famous book, which I recommend you reading. It's so fun, Save the Cat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his whole thing is like the hero should save the cat in the first three minutes of the book or movie. Mm -hmm. So the hero does that. Then you learn about his kind of Secondary characters, the ones that are going to be there for a while. Often you also meet the villain in some form there, though not always. So everything's kind of established in that. And then the big thing, then there's what's called the spark, which is the inciting incident. And the world's kind of flipped on the hero's head. And all of a sudden, some big thing happens. Uh-oh. And I think in, in, you know, in strategy presentations, we can talk about it more in depth. But obviously, there's often like that cultural tension or something that's like, oh, well, things were going great until... Dun, dun, dun. And then from there, so the act one has a pretty simple one. It's day in the life, then the spark happens. Then all of a sudden the hero's faced with like, hey, this thing just shifted and you're gonna have to do something kind of brave and go into the unknown. Are you gonna do that? And the hero almost invariably says no and resists. That's that famous refusal of the call. And then at the end, he or she decides, do I stay or do I go? And then they go into the new world, which is act two. Mm, so we've got, there's routine or day in the life of, routine breaks, there's a challenge to accept a task, there's resistance of the task, and then acceptance of the task. Exactly. Sometimes problem and theme stated will pretty much always problem slash theme stated. Okay, I think we can make these work. We are doing this without any rehearsal, so let's see what comes out. If the adopter is our hero, now the routine is probably gonna come from the research that we've done into their lives mm -hmm. and how they're looking into adoption yeah is that right so that's the routine we feed the routine with here's what's going on with these people here's the research that we've done here's how they live here's maybe where they live uh here's some people that we spoke to and here's what they're here's what's going on with them as they're deciding which dog to adopt exactly that yep okay routine breaks mm -hmm. so this is where i'd love your input honestly mm -hmm. too like often it, it depends how you time it out because often there's obviously that like cultural tension or twist or you know every strategist has a different name for that but like when, when that kind of enters in the equation and that i think is you know because something else to mention up front i think is actually i'd love your take on this so something to mention up front is when you think of a presentation fully especially a classic you know presentation for marketing the presentation isn't 100 full of strategy obviously and i think a yeah. lot of what you're doing when you're 
transposing the idea of like screenplay or writing theory and structure onto this is including the creative aspect as well. So there's, mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's always the question, and this again is why you can do this a thousand different ways, where part of this story is going to be the creative solution to this as well. So that's all in totally. there. T- totally. And, and I think the strategy component of this three-act structure we're playing with here is actually mostly going to appear in act one. So the, the routine to me in this situation is us bringing to life the problem that we've discovered that people, I know it's general, but the people who are thinking about adopting a dog who are aware of greyhounds, they see greyhounds as intense athletes. So if you are presenting on slides and you don't always have to present on slides, pro tip, <laughs> secret. From oh you, God. From you. <laughs> yeah, well, so you can have multiple slides and videos of these people talking about how they just see greyhounds as athletes. You can have photos of them watching television and watching greyhounds racing and all kinds of stuff. But that's basically the routine. It's no more complicated than that for these people thinking about adopting a dog. For them, their routine, as far as how they see greyhounds, is that greyhounds are intense athletes. So you try to bring that to life in a really dramatic way where possibly the very first thing you show the room is like the most dramatic way to grab people's attention because you're trying to land what the problem is. The problem breaking could actually be us landing the strategy mm-hmm. where we're like, but here's the thing. They're not going to be racing once they've retired. And when you adopt them, they're retiring. So do you want to adopt one and help the Greyhound retire? That's us through strategy breaking that routine, right? I think that's, yeah, exactly. I think what's cool about the way you said it too is that I think often that moment also it kind of spells out the hook too. It's like, oh, that twist is, you know, that that initial twist is also the the high concept idea a lot of the times kind of like stated similar to how we would do it in this in this um, presentation. Yep. Then uh, as far as resistance, it could be a slide or two where talking and sharing more research, which is, okay, so you're open to adopting them maybe, but you think they're really big. You think they're skinny and they're not cuddly enough you think and we basically sort of break down the other obstacles or barriers that we might have to address through our campaign through our messaging later on but i think resistance could almost provide a little bit more detail into the other things we need to solve other than the big problem that greyhounds are athletes and if they come into my home they're going to treat my home like a racing track and i don't want that right so there's resistance there then I guess agreement in this presentation starts to shift us into the, probably into the campaign idea, into the the creative, where we assume there's an agreement, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could say to the client, do you want to see the creative? Yes. Or (laughs) even though they're not the, you know, greyhound adopter. But I I think the agreement there actually moves us into act two. Fair enough? Exactly, yes. And I'm excited for this part because there's so many ways we can figure out how this next part works. Fun and games, exactly. Fun and games. You got it. So this, again, was one of the other uh huh, like mind blown moments I had, which is the idea of fun and games. So when a lot of people, so a lot of people, when you study, you know, screenwriting and all that and story building, a lot of times people read the same books in the same ish order, right? They hear about screenplay by Sid Field. Then they hear about story by Robert McKee. Then you probably hear about one or two other ones. And then you may get to save the cat. And the reason I say save the cat first is because it's just the most readable. It's very fun and entertaining. And it lays it out in a really nice way that like you can poke holes in it and you can like shift it as you go, but it's a really nice bit. So I didn't read Save the Cat until far into my kind of like writing, I'm not going to say career, but like writing path. And I always struggled with the first half of Act 2 because you'll see that everything story structure-wise gets really, really formulaic, or at least there is a very tight structure as soon as you get into the second half of Act 2 until the end. And again, it's very, very well-structured in Act 1. But Act 2, Part 1 was very strange for me until Blake Snyder and Save the Cat explained it 
as you just did, Mark. It's fun and games. So if you look at the best way to talk about it is you have this crazy premise you came up with. You're super excited about that premise and you want to show how awesome that premise is. That's what act two part one is for. It's the fun and games. It's called the promise of the premise. You know, like here's the hook. Let's have fun with it. Often most of the scenes you see in a trailer are from act two A. And so that's good to remember. So now it's it's like you said. So I, I was thinking of it the exact same when you were like, to me, it makes sense to like at least begin the showing the creative here. And I think, you know, Again, depends on the type of presentation everyone has in mind, but I think in the kind that I'm used to, and maybe a lot of the ones you're used to, Mark, since we work together, the, it's not that the strategist just walks out of the room after that initial strategy, and I think that's what we'll be talking about. So this first part to me could be that beginning of the fun and games, and like here's the like big, sexy, creative idea and how fun it like, kind of like shows up in the world. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's almost like the roller coaster's gone up, and then you're like, okay, now we're going down, and that's where it yep. becomes fun. Uh, you've also explained fun and games through superhero movies before, and I think that's a really easy way to grasp this concept. What happens in some of the superhero movies that you like in at the start of Act Two? A hundred percent. So superhero movies, I think, are, are the best example in a lot of ways. So. You know, usually by the end of Act One, they've found their power, they don't accept it, and they do something to like push it away and whatever. Act Two starts when they accept their power and they're like, hey, this is pretty sweet. Let's have fun with this. And Act Two A is them just having a ball with their powers. And, you know, funny side note, the, the YA book I'm, I'm writing has as kind of like its plot, it, it's a little bit superheroish. And my editor, when she read it, she's like, hey, you got to work on the fun and games when they discover their powers. I was like, oh, I talked about that all the time back in the day. So, yeah. yeah so that's why they're blowing stuff up, they're flying around Gotham City. They're they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And you, you know that some bad stuff's going to come, but you don't feel it. You know, you've got 10 or 15 minutes or so in the movie, at least, to just relax and enjoy this person who's discovered their powers, right? So exactly. that is absolutely like all the different social posts. The campaign idea, we'll start with the campaign idea that connects to the strategy and the problem. Let's do that. Let's do that, please. Let's do that. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then you've got all kind of the wacky ways to bring it to life, right? A hundred percent. Okay fun and games after that what happens okay so here's what's interesting fun game happens like you said it's it's like there's that 15 20 however many long minutes of not having to worry about anything else and then the real world catches up to them or the story catches up to them whatever you want to say the villain catches up to them whatever that is all of a sudden the midpoint happens and uh, this i think there's a lot of fluidity in how different people deal with this i don't think you can be super pedantic about this moment but in general a lot of people talk about it as crossing the rubicon the idea that the hero crosses the point of no return they do something that they can't undo they do something that plunges them into act two. And so it's funny because I feel like there's two separate roller coaster metaphors here. So I don't want to mix them up too much, but there's like mm -hmm. the roller coaster metaphor you said is exactly like perfect in terms of like it's going up, up, up. Act two, it goes down, wee. But then there's almost like a different emotional roller coaster that hits at the very end of act two A, which is like the real world catches up and all of a sudden, you know, shit starts getting bad and it gets worse and worse and worse. And from that moment, you've hit the high, that high note at the end of act two A and it's going to start going down. So a lot of times people talk about a false victory. The hero gets this moment of clarity. Everything's going to work out. Oh, things seem great. We just had the fun and games. Maybe we had a little victory against like a minor skirmish with the villain. Uh-oh, that was a false victory. Now everything's going to start going down. There's a couple of these themes that we're about to come into that I don't always use in a presentation because they, <laughs> yep. they can, they can feel, and I, look, I fight against the word negative, but they can feel a bit negative. So look, if, if we've said that our hero here is the potential adopter of a greyhound and we've just shown the CEO of greyhounds, all these wild and wacky ways we can bring this theme, this concept of uh, adopting a greyhound is helping a greyhound retire, sends them to a retirement home, then, you know, the point of no return and reality catching up with the hero here, the adopter, what's that look like? I mean, if we're honest about it, it's uh, the honeymoon period's over. Although I guess adopting a dog can be a bit rough in the first few weeks, months anyway. But do we use this in this presentation? 
Right. That's a hundred percent. I was trying to problem solve it in my head as we were coming to this point. Cause I was like, this is tough. And there's two ways I can see it. Cause that's exactly it. Like you could definitely continue to like, again, after you've shown off that sexy creative, you can like, you know, get a twist in there. Like, well, not everything's, you know, happily ever after. The other way to look at it too, is the idea of bringing in like comms planning. Cause here's the point where like, you've seen that pure untarnished creative idea. Now let's complicate it because the real world is complicated. There's a lot of channels out there. There's a lot of different ways it's going to get onto the world. Let's show you how this very pure idea translates into all these different ways. So it's not exactly mapping to like the villains catching up and bad things are happening, but it is mapping to the idea of like, there was purity in the first part of act two, and now it's like the reality. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that a lot of writers, they not only place obstacles in front of people, but they try to complicate a situation. They try to complicate a life or a scene. And and part of that's just like for some writers and for some heroes, it's like, what's the worst thing that could happen to them here? The other way to approach this point would be to actually land the most eccentric idea and to kind of emotionally do the opposite, which is like, yeah, all that other stuff's great. We're going to do it. It's easy guess what we're going to do for this insert quote unquote tentpole moment. It's going to be amazing. So you could kind of play with it. But the point is that there is a significant shift in energy where you're either, I guess, complicating things to then clarify them, or you're taking things up a notch. Like you've been on that amazing roller coaster and then, oh, guess what? There's more. And you're like, oh God, what's about to happen? Probably two ways that we could make the analogy work, right? Yep. Act two, is there anything other than long, dark night of the soul? So there's almost been a victory, doesn't quite work. And then we have to go and meditate somewhere to work out what we're all about in life before we return again. How how can that fit into a creative slash strategy presentation? Perfect. Act two B is exactly that. It's just the plunge into darkness. It goes from the false victory leads into like this long journey into night. Things get bad to worse. Villains get more powerful. Things are looking grim. Then there's rock bottom, like you'd said before, where like everything's bad. Sometimes, you know, often like a secondary character dies at that moment or something horrible happens. There's like this whiff of death. And then from the ashes. So in the screenplay version, what happens, and I, you said it perfectly better than I'm going to say it right now, but <laughs> basically the idea here I doubt that. is... I don't know. I, let's see. So in that moment, it's a Phoenix moment, which is I always find yeah, really interesting because yeah. the other Eureka moment I had when learning about this stuff was what, what this moment is about. And what it is, is this is where the story and the plot come together. So this is where the hero often realizes what they need and they realize what their flaw is and they realize mm-hmm. what they have to do to flip it. And that realization powers them to kind of like have a Phoenix moment where they come back, rise up from the ashes, and then often literally run into act three. Mm-hmm. Often, that, that's my favorite thing to do when you watch, especially like comic book movies and that sort of stuff, action movies, like the hero almost always, you can like pinpoint the moment that they're literally running into the third act because they're armed with this new knowledge. Sometimes it's their love interest that like gives them this Eureka moment and whatever it might be. But yeah. your initial question, which I'm now <laughs> throwing it back. Well, let, well, let's try and connect it to Greyhound. So yeah. this section comes after either a comms plan, which is like, yeah, the world's really messy, but we've got structures and some data and some science to actually make sense of it. And or we've just landed like an amazing idea that they really didn't expect, really eccentric. What, what's that going to be for the hero of the story, which we've said is the adopter? I mean, maybe we have to flip it a little bit and it's the CEO and their their situation because the bad part, of this story would be if we don't do this what could happen you know there could be thousands of these dogs that don't find a home you know so you're sort of changing the mood but i don't know if that's the best example that we're going to come up with can you think of one I like that one. And the the other one I was thinking of, because the, the cool thing to do with story structure is look at it in documentaries. You know, since since the first thing I really like 
you know, created the whole thing with my friends was the documentary, not a narrative screenplay. It was interesting to kind of force the idea of like story structure into the documentary. So I started like looking at tons and tons of documentaries to see it. And the rock bottom from the ashes moment actually happens in documentaries and it's really fascinating. And usually what that is, at least in the ones I've seen, I think Super Size Me is my favorite example is there's a thesis that went into that documentary. You know, McDonald's food is going to make you feel horrible and you're going to like, you know, in that moment, like lose like years of your life and, you know, very, very epic. But there's the moment there. And what that moment is in the documentary is the flip version. And in that documentary, I believe what they do is they interview somebody who's eaten a McDonald's hamburger every day of their life because he just loves that. And he's totally healthy, right? Other examples of it are, you know, it's basically like there was a thesis, but look, this is where the thesis doesn't hold. So one way to look at this part of the presentation could also be the idea of here's all the questions you might have in your head that are blocking you from accepting this idea or accepting this strategy or whatever. We're going to like intercept those and talk through them. That's maybe yep, another yep. way to look at it. Uh, another thing that, that fits here, although it might feel a bit forced, it would depend on the interviews that you do, is you, you know, not the biggest fan of pre-testing. I don't think that's a secret, but like, right. you know, you talk to potential adopters, you might show them the campaign or like potentially, I don't know, in a stage setting or in a real environment. And then you try to work out how they feel afterwards so that you're able to present back to your client that they've had this epiphany that, oh yeah, I, the, I don't know, the bias, the thing that I was thinking about the Greyhounds, it's true, but it's going to change once I adopt one, right? So that, that could be, you know, rather than kind of disappearing into like the long, dark night of the soul, the thing we're taking out of that section is the epiphany that I didn't know that I needed this, but now I do and I want it. Yes. Absolutely. Act three, pretty straightforward, really, right? Yeah. The only thing I'll say to act three, which I, I, I'm super curious for your take on it too, is like, to me, there's the reality. No, there's the, there's a like platonic ideal or the ideal of what a presentation should be. And then there's the reality of that presentation in the room when you're presenting it to a client. And what I usually find is that either against your best intentions or because you're too used to this happening, act three often gets muddled by time. And like, if, if, <laughs> if a group doesn't like really practice the hell out of their strategy, sorry, not their strategy, the presentation, often what happens is you kind of trail off into nothingness. It becomes like, here's a really, really strong act one that we've spent weeks or months honing in the strategy. Here's a really, really strong act two that the creative team has like worked with a strategic team to come up with. And like, now we have this fantastic creative vision, you know, and then here's, you know, to your point, like even a lot of the different ways we even talked about act two B, I think you see that in a lot. But often I find that people just trail off into act three and it's only the, the best presentations that like really take into account, like how do we not just bring in the strong strategy up front? How do we not just show off the creative, but how do we fuse it at the end? Like come back to it, reflect on it and like make it feel like a whole package. And yeah. I'll also say that like often it's, it's a time issue or like the clients are late to the meeting and we have to cut it short. But when it's not, I think that it's really impressive when an agency or whoever might be nails that part of a presentation. A lot of act threes of agency presentations. I've been involved with some some like this for sure. A lot of act threes actually just feel like an appendix. It's like all the yes. other information, the budget, yes. the team, and some of it's important, but uh, you start to lose the story momentum. And all of a sudden you've got 10 people in the room who've all got one slide each around about now. And so it can really, yeah, it can absolutely really trail off. And then, and I know we've done this, but like ending with thanks, I think yep. is, is problematic like it's <laughs> not a lot of effort there when you know you mentioned right. the word midpoint most movies have a starting image and an ending image where the starting image and ending image are opposite but they allow you if you think about having a first slide and a last slide that connect thematically they allow you to bring back something that you mentioned in the first slide exactly uh, some kind of follow-through so key parts of act three that might be useful new routine established we've got to somehow fit measurement in here as well new routine established there's obviously victory mm -hmm. and then 
we feel that things are ending in a happy way, right? Exactly. I mean, depending on the movie, but usually, yes. <laughs> At least a satisfying way. We don't have to get into this because I don't know how we'd map all this, but they always talk about like there's different endings. There's four different endings depending on how the hero's want and need are met. So like classic happy ending, a hero gets what he wants and what he needs, but there's all sorts of interesting ones in the middle where a hero might get what he wants, but not what he needs. Often we see that a hero gets what he actually needed, but not what he wanted, you know? So like, oh, I learned this big truth because like I thought I wanted X, but what I needed was family or, you know, a girlfriend. Yeah. or whatever that might be. Yeah, I love it. So by way of ending, it, it, you could actually, again, bring back an anecdote that you personally started with if you started the presentation. You could bring in some video footage of interviews yes. that you've done where you found people who might have actually had the very objection to adopting a greyhound that you're trying to solve for, and yet you've interviewed them a year or two after they've adopted one, you've, it's just struck gold. <laughs> you know, you've had <laughs> a handful of people with the exact same issue and they've solved it. And, and so that could be there as well. Any other kind of Greyhound connections that we can make in, in Act 3? Um, no, I feel like that's that's exactly right. I think I would have echoed the exact same thing you said in terms of like, I do think a lot of times in agencies, that last part feels like an appendix. And then you have to keep in mind, especially when you're presenting, you know, often agencies just kind of like present in a row to a client, like that last bit has to be as powerful, if not the most powerful part of the movie. Same thing as a movie or a book, right? If like Game of Thrones, as the obvious example, like if you have an ending that people don't like, it cast the entire rest of the thing in question. If you have an ending that's very blasé and you're just getting into, like you said, like an appendix of different like minutia, it needs to happen. But like, maybe there are more artful ways of doing it. Or maybe to your point, like that's right before the ending, then the ending is the big epiphany at the end because you want to have that powerful last moment, last experience so that when you leave the room, they're still having that glow about your presentation versus kind of like, oh, we just spent the last 20, however many minutes talking minutia. Yeah, we all know this. People are going to come in and out mentally exactly. of your presentation. They might remember the starting slide they might remember a couple of the ideas they might not remember the strategy <laughs> yep. at all so you want to end with some kind of peak experience just like a lot of restaurants do where they come out with like a free scoop of ice cream you're like oh my god that was the best meal ever incredible yes. as, as opposed to just saying thanks or just like talking blah 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 through numbers or appendices type of stuff look it is really hard to do these kinds of presentations yeah. in, some, in some ways uh, one of the things that i think complicates it is you know writing and presentations, I feel like they need a voice and a voice is hard to do with a committee and people fight for attention and to manage their quote unquote optics through presentations. And that can just muddy everything. And then we all give in to each other. And then you've just basically got like slide one and three, that's mine, slide four to six, that's yep. you. They aren't connected. There's like this energy of passive aggression yes as opposed to allowing a person or two to really find that voice and then helping to cast the rest of the team as characters in the presentation yes versus frankensteining it with a bunch of school essays that you all want to get credit for Yes. Amen. Yeah. And you do that two ways. I feel like, you know, I feel like to your point, like you see it happen as the presentation is created, but often you also see it as it's presented where you have all these different voices in there jumping in and out every four slides. It's like you said, like both in the crafting of the presentation and especially the presentation of the presentation, like let, let a few voices tell their story. Cause they, you know, will tell it much better than a thousand different voices. Yes. Yeah. And look, I can say this and I say it with love, <laughs> but if you're in a management team and you're not involved with the work or writing the pitch, and then you somehow miraculously yes. appear the day before, change everything and end up presenting half of it. No, no, don't yes. do that. Don't do that. Let yes. your team fight. Let them, put them in the ring. That's what they've worked 
their asses off for, you be there to support them. You don't have to take over because, it, you know, the person who's doing that, they do it often because they're overconfident, but it makes the room feel not confident. Oh God, there's only one thing you can take away from this entire session. I would say it's that. I've seen it so many times too. And also you love that moment when that happens and somebody asks a difficult question and the, the management person kind of looks over at the person who actually created the entire presentation. Like, hey, what, what do I say here? <laughs> yeah, I look, especially if they got their phone on their lap and they're kind of tapping away at it. Yes. Um, Vic, last question for you. Where do you think you are in life in the three-act structure? Oh, God, what a good, oh, such a good question. It depends on your personality. I think there's a, a want and a need to always feel like you're either like fun-wise in Act 2A or emotionally somewhere in that space. I, I think, I mean, bringing it that way, I think what's interesting there is I think so many people have written about like the pandemic and how all this has been affecting us as feeling like a long, dark night of the soul and how everyone feels like, you know, when we feel like there's a little bit more closure on all this, we'll all kind of be having a Phoenix moment and like running back into the world. So I hear that. But I think life life wise, I think it's always, you know, if you're like super curious and you're always like learning and like dipping your toe into stuff, it's it's nice to think that you're always kind of somewhere in the fun and games, um, always progressing, you know, always kind of trying to get to the next adventure and, and not getting too mired in the in the second part of Act 2. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could disagree with the premise because maybe you, you write 15 books in life as opposed to having one three-act structure right. throughout your life. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm a book like eight or nine, you know. I'm, I'm going exactly. to get one of these books right soon. <laughs> Same. It's coming, it's coming. <laughs> uh, Vic, if people want to find you on the internet, where's the best place? Probably just victorpreneur.com or just email me. I think in terms of what's really useful is if if you dug the idea of kind of dipping into story structure, just Google my name and screenplay because whether or not you like the actual presentation I give, at the end of it, there's a lot of resources that kind of tell you, here's all the different places to go um, and just to update that. So on that presentation, I give a ton of different books. The newer places that I found is there are a few fantastic masterclass classes. Not going to shit on the rest, but I will say there's like two or three Neil Gaiman is amazing. There's another one. It'll come to me in a second, which is incredible. And then also uh, this guy, Brandon Sanderson, he's a fantastic, very prolific, very famous sci-fi writer. He publishes on YouTube his entire class every year. It is a treasure trove as well. So everything I have in whatever you find on my documents and then that as well. <laughs> Beautiful, Vic. So good to chat to you about this today. Thank you for being here with me on Sweathead. Oh, thank you. This was so much fun. Peace.